0: Hello, everyone. This is Dominique Hill, the Associate Program Director for the St. Mary Mercy Hospital Emergency Medicine Residency Program, and today I have our great simulation uh, lead physician, Dr. Christopher Brock, and today we're going to talk to you about epistaxis management in the emergency department. In terms of how often this happens, um, this there tends to be about 60% of the population that uh, develops epistaxis, and usually about 0.5% of those are ED visits, and then going from there, about uh, 0.2% have to be admitted due to severe epistaxis, so I'd I'd be very curious to hear about uh, Dr. Brock's uh, interest and how he uh, developed that into uh, liking uh, epistaxis management. Welcome, Dr. Brock.
1: Hi, thank you for having me. So yeah, I think um, the reason I like nosebleeds is, one, I think it's like one of those procedures that I just get fulfillment out of, and two my stepdad was actually an ear nose and throat doctor so i spent a lot of time in his office and kind of assisting him occasionally and doing procedures and things like that in the office so um yeah i think that's where kind of my liking for it comes from and you know this time of year i've been seeing a lot of nosebleeds i think it's the changes in the season and allergies and things like that so people blowing their nose a lot or People using a lot of, you know, nasal sprays and things like that, which might be increasing the incidence around this time of year. And then you also seem to see it a lot in the winter, just with the dryness and the air too. But what I've noticed though, a lot of times is, you know, the residents are coming up to me and saying, oh, I hate doing nosebleeds. I I hate them. And I really enjoy them. So I want to try and change some people's minds on that and try and tell them my kind of stepwise approach and how I approach these patients and uh, hopefully everybody will be a little bit more comfortable with it after this.
0: All right, we'll change our minds, Dr. Brock. (laughs) Let's start off with uh, the types of nosebleeds and what what are the different management for each of those
1: types? Sure. So, there's either anterior epistaxis or posterior, and 90% of these are going to be anterior. And most of these occur in the anterior septum. In the Kesselbach plexus Uh, sometimes you can see things on the floor of the nose like something from a mass or something like that which I've seen previously and those can be a little bit more tricky Um, but these are things that you can usually visualize and see with anterior uh, rhinoscopy so um, that's the anterior and then for the posterior that's about 10% of them and then obviously, you can't visualize these directly, you need endoscopy. So, um, in terms of management of these, typically uh, what we're trying to do in the anterior bleed is to visualize it. So, you'll need to make sure you have your light source, your nasal speculum, your suction, uh, some airway management things just in case, and then Uh, your packing devices, cotton balls, things like that. And we have these nice little trays in our department which have the appropriate suction because the typical Yankower suction isn't going to work for these. So you need uh, a longer, thinner type of suction device for these. So make sure your department has the appropriate suction when you're looking around. But most departments, I'm sure, do.
0: Okay. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, how do you like to evaluate the nosebleeds?
1: So typically what I do is I make sure I have everything ready, so I've got that epistaxis management tray with me, get that opened up, make sure I have some different medications available. Usually I like to uh, start off with just some oxymetolazine and have that, have some lidocaine solution with epinephrine and then uh, TXA available as well, so kind of have everything ready so I can go through these steps. So... Usually, my initial step in management of these is trying to take a look. Well, actually, let me start back. The initial step in management is to have the patient actually just blow everything out of their nose that's in there right now. And once they do that, have them hold it for 15 minutes on the soft part of the nose just below the nasal bone and say no peeking, no checking it, just hold it for 15 minutes then I'll come back and see. And if it's not bleeding at that point, usually watch for another half an hour and then they're good to go if if it's not re-bleeding. If you see maybe a little bit of oozing or anything like that, sometimes you can do some cautery at that point and you're all set. If that doesn't work, you need to go back and try and visualize where the bleeding is coming from. So usually if you've gotten everything blown out again at that point, have them blow their nose, you can try and visualize. Use the nasal speculum. Using a headlamp is always really helpful too if you have that available. So I get the headlamp on, take a look. If I can see the bleeding, what I try and usually do is put a packing on there with some TXA, and usually that's about uh, half the bottle of the concentrated form that you use for IV injection, so 500 milligrams, and using that, and putting that in with about a one-to-one mixture with some lidocaine with epinephrine seems to work pretty well. So what I do is soak a cotton ball in that, pack that in there, and leave that in for 15 minutes come back see where things are at again if there's a little bit of oozing or anything at that point you can usually use a little bit of cautery silver nitrate and with that you want to start kind of from the outside edge of the bleeding and work your way in but if there's brisk bleeding the the cautery unfortunately won't work so that's the one tricky thing is (laughs) you would think it would help but it doesn't work if there's brisk bleeding if there's a little bit of just light oozing it will but if not usually I'll go back Try putting another packing in. Again, and then again, come back after 15 minutes. If it hasn't stopped and it's still bleeding briskly, then I'll move on to other steps like putting in a nasal packing, like we have the Rhino Rocket system here, or uh, the uh, nasal tampon, cell mm-hmm. packing. So, with the interior uh, Rhino Rocket devices. You soak those in sterile water and then place them in, don't use saline, and then inflate them with air. And usually what I'll do is try and inflate them slowly with air because they tend to be very uncomfortable. So I'll try and get about five cc's or so of air in there. And then if the patient isn't really tolerating it very well, I'll take a tiny bit out, wait a couple of minutes, put a little bit more in, just kind of as they're tolerating it, and kind of build up that pressure slowly and i think that helps the balloon kind of inflate and move around the turbinates more i mean it's just theoretical but (laughs) i think that's they seem to tolerate that better
0: okay so it sounds like you have a very good stepwise approach that requires multiple re-evaluations which i'm sure most ed docs can attest to this can be something that can be a very lengthy process
1: it can be um i find typically actually the uh txa uh, combination works quite well um, I think there's some recent studies showing that that has been more successful, actually, than using these other products. So um, usually that's, that's why that's my go-to first you know, step if just direct pressure isn't helping.
0: Okay. So we've gone through the different types of nosebleeds. We've talked about evaluation. We've talked about management. So when, you, so when you say when that all fails, mm-hmm. you go to a rhino rocket. Mm-hmm. So we'll, let's talk a little bit about disposition because about 0.2% of these patients when they uh, present to the ED will require admission from my um, research that I found. So uh, let's talk about disposition now.
1: Sure. And uh, just briefly on the uh, posterior uh, bleeds, those type of bleeds, if you have a dedicated device you can use those there's longer Rhino rockets or you could use a fully catheter um, balloon insert it till you see it in the posterior pharynx and then fill it with seven cc's of fluid pull it back and then fill it with another seven cc's of fluid and any of those have to be admitted to the hospital that's a temporizing measure so ENT can see them and with any posterior packings Uh, that has increased risk for causing vagal stimulation, actually, and dysrhythmias. So you need to make sure those are admitted to a telemetry floor. Um, And then for the anterior uh, epistaxis, uh, if they've had significant bleeding and you check uh, blood counts and they need transfusion, obviously those would have to be admitted, or if they have unstable vitals, Um, you know, consider checking blood counts and they will likely need admission as well. Or if you just can't get the bleeding to stop um, for some reason, then it's likely, again, a posterior bleed and you'll need further measures in ENT uh, in order to take care of those.
0: Okay. Um, One last question. Are you prophylactically giving these patients antibiotics after you're packing them?
1: So sometimes if it's like a Friday and they can't get into ENT until Monday and that packing's going to be in for several days, uh, I will. But not all the time. There's not any great evidence. But just kind of use my judgment in talking to ENT and trying to see when they can follow up. And if it's a little bit longer than I would like, then I may do prophylaxis. Um, The other option, too, if you're putting in the mirror cells, you can coat those with, like, an antibiotic ointment, a water-soluble antibiotic ointment, too. Um, So that may help with that. Um, But, no, not all the time.
0: Okay. Reasonable. Well, I think that'll conclude our case cast for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Brock, for joining us today to talk about the management of epistaxis and why it holds a special place in your heart. Thank you. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us. We'll catch you next time.